Welcome to the Smart Pacific Podcast from the PTC. Introducing more insights from ICT thought leaders in the Pacific and beyond is your host, Steve McClelland. In this episode, we look at Singapore and how it's shaping its current policy and regulatory development. Singapore is often seen as one of the world's most technology-ready nations and one driven heavily by carefully considered policymaking. Ranking very high in economic competitiveness and stability, Singapore is also one of the early adopter countries for new ICT products and services. We caught up with Harindapal Singh Rawal, who is Cluster Director for Networks, Technology and Resilience, at Singapore's regulator, the Infocom Media Development Authority, to explain the new regulatory initiatives that are crossing his desk to keep Singapore in the forefront. I first asked him as to what the current priorities are. So there have been some trials for 5G going on elsewhere, and naturally as an early adopter of technology, there have been questions as to what Singapore's timeline would be to get 5G rolled out as well. However, as far as the operators, they express that the 4G investments have not been fully recovered or recouped as well, and 4G coverage is still excellent in Singapore. So we've been looking at the timelines that need to be put in place and mostly 3GPP and the WRC as far as the standards and the spectrum are concerned seem to be aligned on the 2019 to 2020 timeframe. So I think we've also set ourselves to say by 2020 everything should be in place for 5G to happen if the operators want it to happen. On the critical path for us is actually spectrum. A few bands have been identified by WRC, but that's actually not where a lot of the trials are happening worldwide. Singapore being a sort of a price taker in this entire spectrum landscape and the standards landscape, we need to know where the ecosystem is going to be, where the devices, uh, the network infrastructure is going to be. So is it going to be 3.5, is it going to be 28, 26 and so on. So we see movement in 3.5, we see movement in 28 and we have concerns by the satellite operators in both those bands. So I think we need to sort out some of the interoperability or the coexistence issues. We also have border coordination issues, Singapore being a very small island. We have immediate neighbors to the north and south, Malaysia and Indonesia. So we will need to coordinate the frequencies that we use with them, harmonize some of the specifications as to how we channelize some of these bands as well. Singapore does not have substantive vendor activity, for example, in 5G infrastructure, Does this play a part in your policy-making considerations? To some extent, you could say that. So if you take China, Korea, Japan, US, parts of Europe, they have a particular industry that is at the forefront of now coming up with 5G standards. And the motivation for some of these countries is in a way to help their particular manufacturer be at the forefront when 5G really takes off. So the fact that we don't actually have a manufacturing industry around telecoms, we that's not our prime consideration. So for us, it's really when 5G does come about, how can we best use it to benefit the consumers and the industry that we have in Singapore? So we, we're coming more from a, a use cases perspective. You know, how would we use it? Is it something that we absolutely need to make sure that our industry is able to take advantage of this and make the next leap transform themselves? Because we have announced a couple of master plans in Singapore, Smart Nation, 
which covers a lot of the government and the consumer services, and then now digital economy, where we are reaching out to other vertical sectors. For these to happen, we need good wired connectivity and we need good wireless connectivity as well. We have good 4G, but 5G offers, I think, certain features that would, say, enable things like IoT, enable things like autonomous vehicles, maybe. So that there may be things that may require some of the features of 5G. And so we need to do whatever is necessary to ensure, okay, you know, once uh, 2020, standards are in place, spectrum is in place, we are ready. In terms of the 26, 28 gigahertz band contention, what are you looking towards? Honestly, for 26 and 28, we are not really looking to the WRC for resolution. In fact, 28 is not even a candidate band for IMT. 28 is on a different agenda item for eSIMs, Earth Satellite in Motion. So for us to make sure that 26 or 28 is available really is an immediate border coordination issue with our neighbours. As long as our neighbours can agree with us to say this is what we use 28 for or this is what we use 26 for, we will be able to move on. 28 in particular, we have some incumbent users, satellite users. We will obviously need to consider their position as well. 26 may be a little bit more straightforward if our neighbours can agree. In terms of rollout, is Singapore considering partial rollouts initially? Is there room for discussion and negotiation about this? Yes, it's something we're prepared to consider. We don't usually negotiate. (laughs) So we would actually really go with uh, what consumer expectations are likely to be. So we currently have requirements for both 3G and 4G, and this is really uh, historical because I think 3G primarily still carries most of the voice traffic. So we do have a very specific requirement for 3G to be available nationwide. Now a lot of the data traffic uses 4G. With 4G, we are more inclined to measure user experience uh, by throughput. But we are more inclined to lean towards throughput in the future. And then, you know, if you're really measuring throughput, it may not matter whether it's over 4G or 5G. Basically, at any particular location, what throughput are you getting? So we are prepared to consider some of the operators' requests to say that 5G, you know, can we not have it nationwide? They may only start at certain hotspots. The throughput obligation can be fulfilled maybe using 4G. We are prepared to consider. Do you have appropriate policies to allow for network densification, for example, in terms of access obligations to buildings. With regards to right-of-way and space and access issues, we've had a position from actually quite a few years ago, from about 2010. We already anticipated that the future is going to be wireless and more and more rooftop space and other deployment space is likely to be needed. So since about 2013, we made changes to a code. We have a code of practice that developers need to comply with when they seek building approval. And in that code, Previously, we used to reserve space for fiber, for copper, and so on. So we've now added space for mobile as an obligation on the building developers. Primarily, it would be rooftop space. In some buildings, malls, the operator may prefer basement car park space. That's fine. So they can negotiate with the developer. We have taken one step further now because at that point, the rooftop space was for your own coverage. But the nature of wireless is usually complementary coverage. I cover you and then you cover me. So we, we, we broaden the language now to say that if an operator deploys on your building, it need not be just for your benefit. This is now legislated. We've actually made changes to the Telecoms Act to mandate that some space on the roof should be made available at no cost for the purposes of cellular mobile telephony. Where does Singapore policy stand in terms of in-building coverage obligations for 5G? As a regulator, we have had in place a quality of service requirement for in-building coverage. Uh, We require 85% of each building to have a reasonable level of mobile signal. 
And this is not just uh, what we term Class A buildings. Actually, this is all buildings, all residential, all commercial, schools, hospitals, whatever. Unless the building specifically says, I'm a single user in this building and I do not want mobile coverage. And this could be like military camps or other secure facilities who say, you know, I actually prefer not to have mobile. So generally, I would say all buildings are covered by in-building coverage requirement. It is 85% indoor coverage. There are certain exceptions. So basements below basement one are carved out. So you, you cover the building and the first basement. There may be parts of the building, like the lifts, the elevators and so on, where we don't have an express requirement to so say you must cover the elevator. It's just like 85% of the building is taken as a whole. So the regulators have put the obligations in place. So ironically, I say it's sometimes the building who will be the one making it a little bit difficult for the operators to get in because operators say, I have an obligation from the regulator. I need to put in more equipment to meet my 85%. The building says, oh, but I'm fine. I'm happy with my coverage. (laughs) So because we also require the building to cough up space, so that's usually where the the negotiations uh, end up uh, arguing about, you know, do I need to pay for this space or not? So like I say, a certain amount of space has to be provided at no charge and the buildings don't really like that. Turning to a different subject, AI, Singapore has broken new ground in terms of studying the ethical issues involved. Can you explain what's going on? We announced last month, actually we announced last year that we have a program called AI.SG and I'm not sure whether you're familiar with that, but basically, so it's AI.SG with a focus on research in AI and then transferring that into solutions uh, for industry. So I think challenges and some solutions that are part of that announcement of AI.SG. So our National Research Foundation put in, equivalent of our National Research Foundation put in uh, funding into a university, so partly research and then partly invites industry to offer challenges for the researchers, which will then translate how AI can be used to solve real-world solutions. Jen, just last month, what I mentioned on the podium was that we announced a council for the ethical use of AI and data. As we deploy more smart nation sensors and other devices out there, we're collecting a lot more data. And I think we basically need to have framework and guidelines in place as to how this data would be used, what would be considered appropriate use, what would be inappropriate use. And again, if AI is going to make a decision, how is that decision going to be conveyed to the person who is impacted? You know, whether the decision is fair, transparent and so on. So this is very preliminary. We have just announced that we are going to form a council. We have appointed the chair. But we are doing two things. We are seeking members who are going to be part of this. At the same time, we put out a consultation paper on what such a framework and guidelines might look like. So we've invited comments from industry and uh, consumer associations as well. We are also looking at whether we can get uh, one of the law universities to carry out research in ethical aspects of AI. So there may be funding that goes into that as well. So in addition to the AI.SG program, which does more solutions for industry, this one is really research on the ethical issues around AI. And finally, what's on your desk at the moment? On my, okay, on my table, so this is a very personal question, right? So on my table, actually a lot of resilience and cybersecurity matters. With so much connectivity, so much data being collected and data being vulnerable, and even... Once companies come on board, they don't realize that they are now exposed to all kinds of hackers and malicious actors out there. We have uh, two broad concerns. One is that once everyone is connected, we cannot afford for the network to go down. So whether it's a fiber network, mobile network, so we, we pay a lot of attention to resilience 
making sure the network remains up and it remains operational. And on the other aspect is cybersecurity. Now that it's up, you're being targeted all the time from all kinds of attacks. And so how do we protect ourselves, protect our, our licensees, which means our we, we manage both telecoms as well as broadcasts. So how we manage our licensees as well as how we manage protect our users. We have a separate government department, GovTech, which also looks at how we protect government systems. And now we have a cybersecurity agency, which actually also does a lot of the CERT function as well as consumer advisories. So there is a lot of focus on cybersecurity that's also part of our, because we look at telecom and broadcast, so part of our mandate as well, and resilience. That's really what's on my table now. Harinderpal Singh Rawal, thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. That's it from Smart Pacific. Show notes are available on the PTC website at ptc.org. Check them out. Thanks for listening. PTC is the premier global nonprofit membership organization promoting ICT in the Pacific Rim. Get involved in the world's most dynamic ICT region. Join PTC today. Participate in PTC seminars and conferences. Engage in PTC research programs. Make web contributions to PTC outreach. Share our dialogue and these PTC podcasts. Help us by rating them on iTunes. For more information about what PTC can do for you, see ptc.org.